March 30th, that's the date AFGE Councils of Social Security Employees and the Social Security Administration have agreed to as re-entry day when employees return to headquarters and field offices. It's a little more complicated, though, as we hear from Council 220 President Ralph DeJulius. Mr. DeJulius, good to have you on. Thank you for having me. So, there is an agreement on re-entry. What does this actually mean? Does it mean everyone's going to be in the field offices and return en masse on that day? No. It may be close to that, but the actual details still have to be negotiated. And that was one of the things that we wanted and we prevailed on in bargaining. That is the day when everyone returns, but we that's when telework begins and work at home by quarantine ends. So management has to get people their telework agreements. Employees who have underlying serious health conditions may still get a reasonable accommodation to continue to telework. Management hasn't made it clear to us if they're going to be doing appointments only or if they're going to just be doing an open casting call where anyone can walk in at any time. We're hoping for more appointments and limited walk-ins so that employees can enjoy the benefits of telework and that the public can enjoy the benefits of the improved services we've been able to deliver while we've been teleworking. In other words, you want sort of a hybrid delivery system, appointments for people that want to come into the office, but telework for those that want to work mostly online, very different from the pre-pandemic when it was strictly you walked into a Social Security office? Absolutely. People would walk into a Social Security office because when they called on the phone, they were told it could be two or three months before they could get an appointment. So they would just come in and sit there for several hours until we could actually see them. We're hoping to avoid that because we don't feel that that's good public service, making people wait. It's better to know what your appointment is, get it done timely, and not have to go in. We like the fact that in this MOU, there is a mask mandate that management is responsible for enforcing, not only for employees, but also for the public, so that everyone will be safe while they conduct their business, both the employees and the public. So how would this work? People would call then the Social Security number and request an appointment at a given office? Correct. My office in Tulsa has 55 people. We can do more appointments than my office in Mountain Home, Arkansas, with only three people. Got it. And so the people that could not get an appointment or preferred to do telework, do they call a phone number? Do they dial into a website? How do the tele appointments actually work at this point? Is it mostly phone? Yes, we do have an MOU that we negotiated, one of the few we successfully negotiated with SSA, about video service delivery. But kinks on that are still being worked out. Normally, we're going to handle appointments the way we do now. The people at home will hook up through a secure virtual private network. They will answer the incoming phone line to the office, help the people, make an appointment, and we use that system to call out to call people for their appointments for an interview. That means that a given employee would have to be at home sometimes to do appointments by or calls in by phone and then be in the office sometimes to do the appointments. That's correct. We still did phone appointments before telework. People in the office would be told, you're not going to be up at the front window. You're going to be sitting at your desk calling people to take appointments. 
That's how we did it before. We're speaking with Ralph DeJulius. He's president of Council 220 of the American Federation of Government Employees. And how do the appointments, how do the telecalls, the telephone appointments, if, if you will, get allocated? Do people call a central 800 number and they get routed? Because if someone is in Oklahoma City, do they really need to talk to someone stationed in Oklahoma City if everyone has access to the same data? Members of the public do not. However, they generally like to deal with their local office. Every office has an appointment calendar. If the people call an 800 number and they ask to have their claim taken in a certain office, the 800 number agents can pull up every office's appointment calendar and fill in an appointment for them. They basically say who it is, what the contact information is, why they want to call, social security numbers, so that when myself or someone like me calls them, We know what it's about. We have the name, social security number, and we're not fumbling around. Now, under this agreement, then, what is the new telework policy, then, if a given employee will be at home for some appointments and be in the office for others? We don't know what the telework policy will be because SSA would not reveal each component's policy to the negotiators. We have heard, for instance, the people in quality review and in systems in various parts of headquarters will be teleworking five days a week because they have no public contact. People in the payment centers uh, are told that they will be teleworking four days a week, but not officially, but teleworking four days a week because they also do not have public contact. They only deal with people by the phone. The 800 number agents in the teleservice centers will be teleworking, we're told, four days a week because they don't have public contact face-to-face. Field offices, we were told they're only going to propose two days a week to telework so that there'll be three days a week when people are in the office. We keep trying to remind the agency that when former commissioner canceled telework in October 2018, we were in the office five days a week. Waiting times were four to five hours and you couldn't get an appointment. We had to take your name because the appointment calendar only goes out 60 days and we didn't have any appointments available. Right now we're teleworking and for most cases we have appointments available in 72 hours. We're trying to figure out what the agency's plan is. I made an information request today for each office's plan because we don't want public service to decline. We're government employees. People generally don't like government employees. We want to give them the best service we can, not make it hard or difficult for them. And with respect to the employment situation itself, there's language in here about bargaining at some point over transit and parking subsidies, but that's yet yes. to be bargained yes. from over from what it looks like. Correct. But that's one of the other things the union wanted and we prevailed on. We have provisions for uh, parents who have problems with their kids in school that they can get uh, an emergency permission to telework. Because as you're hearing in the papers and over the Internet, one kid gets COVID and they end up closing down the school. Schools, in, uh, I believe, in Oklahoma City closed because the teachers had COVID and they didn't have enough people for the classes. So we've gotten SSA to agree to those kind of flexibilities for the employees, which is a huge victory. Because when we had our briefing from SSA, management deadpanned, well, they could take personal leave. 
Yeah, but they'll run out of personal leave. Management denies leave now, and this way they can still work. All right, so the best we know at this point is that there's a lot to bargain over, but the target date for people having a combination type of life, the employees of some days working the phones, dealing with the public from home, and some days working in the office, dealing with the public in the field office, that's roughly what's going to happen March 30th. That is correct. It's the middle of the week. So one of our other concerns is, all right, are you going to have exceptions for parents who are going to have to pay for a week's worth of daycare and they're only going to use Wednesday and Friday or Wednesday and Thursday? Those things still have to be addressed. And the agreement allows us to uh, have three sessions with management, and if we are not happy with the outcome, we can make bargaining demands. The letter of intent also says that management will meet with local reps to go over unique features in the office. So there's a lot of work to do. Yes, and very little time if we're looking at March 30th, because we don't want to be reaching the agreement the evening of March 29th. We'd like all these things to be worked out so that management knows what to expect, so that the public knows what to expect, and so the employees know what to expect. All right, let's hope there's not a new variant in the meantime. Ralph DeJulius is president of Council 220 of the American Federation of Government Employees representing Social Security employees. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect 
as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.